0: on this week's Swing Geek Cast, we cover Sidney Lumet's 12 Angry Men, and we take the Oscars to court. They're for sure guilty, right? Movies and friendship, those are <laughs> mysteries. Yeah, well, you know, that's just like, uh, your opinion, man.
1: Alright, welcome back to another week here on the, the Twin Geeks cast. This time, you know, it's almost the end of February here. I believe this is our last podcast of February, right?
0: It's a big weekend. We got Oscar weekend, which we're both extremely excited about.
1: Uh, <laughs> yeah. Just like everyone else on the internet right now, we're ecstatic about the Oscars.
0: I don't know if there's ever been an Oscars with so much negative buzz leading up to it. I feel like they have an image problem.
1: Yeah, well and it's it's kind of shocking how badly they've messed up this time because last year was really good for the Oscars. There was a lot of you know, proper representation and like all of the good films that everyone was interested in got nominated and proper films were awarded. And then this year's just like a clusterfuck.
0: You say that, but no Phantom Threat at the end. So
1: <laughs> <laughs> Phantom Threat at least got some nominations. I know you're still upset that Johnny Greenwood didn't get the Oscar for that, but
0: this year too. No yeah, no, this
1: one's this one's way worse. I think that uh, I I at least like the You Were Never Really Here score a bit more.
0: Yeah, but. I mean, I think it it's better than the Drive score, which everyone says is an all timer. But this has so many time signature changes and cool classical um, implements on new music that it's such a new soundtrack that
1: doesn't exist outside of it. I think that we're both kind of in agreement here that just no representation whatsoever for you or never really here is the biggest snub of the Oscars.
0: I think it's a hell of a year for women directors, and to have zero of them nominated when you are willing to nominate Brian Singer is a fucked up precedent.
1: Yeah. Well, he didn't get nominated, I don't think, for. No, but his director, movie, but of course. Yes, his movie is, you know. But that would, that would have really been, like, I would have been riding in the streets. I would have got together some money to go (laughs) pick it outside the
0: oscars i mean even getting nominated for best editing was questionable to me because of course they saved this movie and they were able to salvage it with another director so there's some editing tricks there but but man it's badly edited
1: well from what i understand um you know because you went and saw i did not go see the movie out of intentional protest from all the you know issues with it and whatnot but it just sounds like like even just from presentation i would have never thought that this is a film that deserves any kind of Oscar attention whatsoever. Like, it's it's yeah. a music biopic, you know? I think the only the one, one that I've ever seen that would deserve any of that is, like, fucking Amadeus, you know, which is yeah. a whole other thing. It's, it has yeah. nothing to do with this.
0: <laughs> I like The Doors also, but not as, like, an Oscar contender. I think that's a lot of fun as a movie. The, but...
1: door, the Doors is really fantastic, and I, ha- I did like when you brought up a comparison with uh, Bohemian Rhapsody and... I kind of want to talk about it in the future.
0: (laughs) Oh, yeah. And I think that um, there's even better musical biopics the last year. Like Ethan Hawke directed Blaze uh, about Blaze Foley, country uh, star. Mm -hmm. I think that's a lot more interesting and better made. So Mm -hmm. it's a little bit jaundiced. It's completely yellow and um, kind of faded out. But it has a style and a heart to it that Bohemian Rhapsody can't even hope to have.
1: All I can hope is that Rocket Man coming out this next year is gonna be much better than Bohemian Rhapsody. I have more faith in it for sure.
0: Yeah, and that that's directed by the what's his name that took over that project, right?
1: Uh I don't know. I mean look it up. I know you know, Taron Egerton, he looks like he's gonna be great and I've really liked him since he kind of uh blew up, you know, so I'm excited to see him in this role here. The director oh okay, the director is uh, Dexter Fletcher.
0: Yeah, he took over after um Brian Singer was kicked out of the uh the Queen musical, yeah, or what is it called? The Bohemian. Did he? I don't think. Yeah, he came in and replaced him afterwards, but uh, I don't think he took the credit because there's too much negative stuff. But right, he completely came in and salvaged
1: that oh, movie. Oh, well, I don't blame him. I wouldn't want my name attached to a Brian Singer film either. I think, uh, with uh, as well as combination with other discussions we've had on Bohemian Rhapsody in past podcasts, that <laughs> our, our our anger is well documented, and we can probably move forward just saying that this controversy is you know much deserved in its you know rage
0: <laughs> so i think before we go forward if you had uh, any uh feeling right now who do you think's taking the
1: oscar uh you know it's gotta be uh you mean for just best director or best picture just best picture best picture i think really the only decision here is between roma and the favorite they seem like the yeah. logical the proper ones to me uh you know i know there's a lot of controversy surrounding roma being a netflix film and um you know the academy really not wanting to embrace that but just the fact that they've nominated it you know shows at least they're making steps so it's very possible those are the only two i see that deserve it um so i
0: think the favorite would be my my first choice but um i could i could see roma happening on a stretch because I think the Oscars really like to reward films that will allow people to go back to the theaters and see them right afterwards. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't really work with their <laughs> with their PR campaign if people just have to go to their couch and watch the film. Because I think Roma needs a bigger stage and it needs a better sound system than you have on your iPhone.
1: I think what's also important to consider is that Roma is classified as a foreign film, which is never one best picture in the history of the Oscars. That would be an unprecedented thing to happen. You know, it it's going to be between it and Choplifters um, for the best foreign film yeah. category, I think. But I do think you're right in kind of thinking that the favorite will, out of those two, be more likely to win. Though we have seen that Green Book seems to be the front runner, statistically speaking.
0: Yeah, I think Green Book is uh, probably has the Academy's heart right now. Um, I don't think Green Book's bad. It's like a 6 out of 10 for me, though. It's not something I'd hold up as the best ex- example of last year. Where I felt like the best parts of film were coming from diverse places, diverse voices. Then we just have a White Guy who went from comedy directing dramedy, and now, you know, I don't feel like rewarding that with anything.
1: Yeah, well, I think what's surprising as well is that not only is it kind of seeming like the Academy's favorite choice here, but that's what audience have been going to see as well since, you know, it's been back in the box office. Um, yeah. The, it's been, and it's still here in the box office this week, and it's the only Oscar contender that's been in the box office this whole time i mean that we talked
0: about (laughs) since we launched the podcast i mean green books basically been with us since it came out so we've had to talk about it basically every week i mean if you if you go down the list it it takes a long time to get to anything else that's in the oscars right like you eventually get to like star is born at 19 it's like fuck
1: we see like a i can see bohemian rhapsody it's at like 15 as well there but yeah, remember we just qualified. It is Oscar nominated for some reason. Yeah, they're not
0: even making a lot of money right now. It's just Green Book is kind of. I see why. I see why it has broad appeal to Central America, and how it could. Um, yeah,
1: yeah, it's That's... it
0: has an all age appeal, but I think probably the most likely vote is Green Book wins the Oscar, and then um, probably Caron wins the Best Director. That's how I see it going down now.
1: That'd be a shame for Lannitas Then he oh, you know, know, especially with all of his films so far receiving a lot of critical praise. I,
0: I just feel like it has so many nominations that people are gonna divide it up and think, Oh, I could make my count I could make my vote count more in this other area so I could see it winning best screenplay where it where I think it has to win. If Green Book wins that I'm going to be outraged.
1: Yeah. Uh, I think, at least for myself, you know, I'm going to need to see some serious change in the academy before I consider supporting it again. This is a huge misstep this year, and I know that you, you know, you've talked about with a uh, Tyler on the site covering some more, uh, you know, the Oscar coverage, maybe doing something. But we're we're all very unsure. It's all very mixed feelings here. Yeah. If it
0: is, it's not going to be about heaping praise on the academy because there's a lot of questionable decisions. I feel like our coverage would need to uh, kind of divulge. Uh, a little bit of a uh, remove for us that we don't support everything they're doing. And uh, let's find out why.
1: Yeah, there definitely needs to be, you know, a lot more, uh, I think, criticism aimed at the Academy this year. You know, and we don't want to give them too much of a spotlight to continue to make bad decisions. I think the most baffling thing so far is that everything they've tried to do, they've rolled back yeah. this entire year. <laughs> like, they've made three distinct unpopular decisions, and then wussed out on every one of them. So
0: there was, what were the decisions? There was the Kevin Hart thing, and then there were... Well,
1: well, before that, before Kevin Hart, in the very beginning of the year, they announced uh, that they were going to do the most popular film category. That's right. Yeah, which was a horrendous thing that received a lot of backlash, and then they immediately kind of revoked that. Like, oh, we're not doing that now. And then there was the Kevin Hart decision, which you know, they had to revoke that as well, and then they ended up going with No. Nobody. Uh, Presenter, yeah. Which is better. You know, a lot of slack needs to be cut off of the Oscars there. Yeah, nobody is better
0: than Kevin Hart. Yeah,
1: (laughs) And then the last decision here was the airing thing. And I think that controversy was a little more inflated because what it sounded like was it just that, you know, when I read further, is that they weren't cutting the category entirely, they were just cutting the... Uh, like the build-up, like the speeches were still going to be there and the announcement. Yeah. They're just kind of all the the airtime in between things that were going to cut. It just, uh, And it was going to be a rotating thing, and they just happened to pick the three most fundamental film categories to cut.
0: And they said that it came from votes within the Academy, and then the uh, Cinematography Guild put out a statement saying nobody within our guild was even aware. Uh, so nobody made any real votes, so they retracted that. Then they also had the deal for a fourth thing, where they're going to only play two songs, but now they've uh, brought back all the songs, and they're only going to play 90 seconds of each, which is a clusterfuck.
1: Yeah, it's it's a whole mess, and some serious rearranging needs to be happening before I give a damn about the Oscars next year, but I don't want to spend too much time lingering on it, because we've we talked a lot about it, of course, so far, and, you know, we still got to get to the box office, we haven't talked about the box office this week yet, which actually has exciting shit now. Yeah, let's get into it. Okay, so number 10 we mentioned here, Green Book. Finally, hopefully the last time we have to talk about it.
0: <laughs> I think that's unlikely, depending on how this week goes. Um, it, Green Book could be in here for another month if it wins. So,
1: it, Yeah, oh, that's true. If it wins, then... Uh, yeah,
0: it's going to be in the top three again next month. Just wait. I'm
1: going to be so annoyed. <laughs> I don't want to deal with it. We thought uh, number nine. Oh, go we ahead. thought
0: <laughs> we thought Bohemian Rhapsody was the one that would always stay with us, but Green Book has been in here the longest.
1: Yeah, it was the dark horse. Like, I, I, how were we supposed to predict that this was going to be the film that everyone wanted to see?
0: So far, we've had fourteen weeks with it in the box office. Really, fourteen? Yeah. Fuck. <laughs> <laughs> right. All right. I'm gonna, fourteen podcasts.
1: I'm gonna move on. At number nine, we have The Prodigy which looks like another...
0: Um, I don't know much about it. It's a horror film. It seems like uh, some of the people have interesting credits, but uh, there's a better horror film this week. So.
1: Yeah, we talked about it briefly last week, but it does not seem to be of much interest, and the ratings also you know, indicate that as well, so we're not going to spend any time on it. At uh, number eight here, we have Glass, which we did a whole podcast. Yeah.
0: Do you feel like uh, people have come around on Glass and that it's had sort of a cult uh re-following that's kind of negated the initial reaction
1: i don't think yet i think it's bound to eventually there's going to be that that kind of cult fan base that really buys into it again i think you know based on my initial thoughts that it has merits but it's not good
0: i felt like it was a little bit of a less baked version of um unbreakable which is a fine movie uh I just feel like Shyamalan doesn't really have it anymore. I feel like Split might
1: not have been the
0: revelation people thought it might have been.
1: Yeah, I, I certainly agree there. Uh, moving on here, at number seven, we have The Upside.
0: Um, No Upside here, I'm not going to see
1: it. Nope, and just another shitty remake. You know, we talked about them a lot last week, so we won't spend too much time there either. But number six, even though it's apparently a shitty remake, we do have more to say about it, and that's Cold Pursuit.
0: <laughs> yeah, which it's, uh we have a review coming that will be up on the site, and we'll have a piece by Tyler that will also be up that um, he went and watched the director's original film on Netflix, then the following day went to the theater, not knowing it was a remake, which must have been frustrating. Like a direct
1: remake, like he, what he was describing <laughs> it was that it's like Michael Haneke's funny games where the director remade it for American audience almost shot for shot. Yeah, and it's. I mean, <laughs> I I, I had so much fun. It's like reading his at piece. first,
0: uh, it is a fun piece. At first, he's like, uh, I just thought the director liked snowplows, and then every shot was the same.
1: Mm-hmm. And and he just realized, and he, it, like his whole theater experience actually sounded like it was something of a nightmare, which is that <laughs> did, which is made for a really compelling piece. He wrote, a, you know, it, it's just a very fun time, and I'm very excited to see it out there, and hope you know listeners will also take a look at it and read because. And and then you have Laura's review as well, which is also very well written.
0: Yeah, it's a nice review and the outcome's about the same. It sounds like an average snowplow movie and um I don't know, I'm still on the fence with Nissan right now, so we'll see.
1: Yeah. Uh number five though, five though, you got a lot more to talk about. This is this is your yeah, baby dude. here. You got uh happy death day to you, which you have been yeah, long is. anticipating. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I've been waiting all year for this. I, I'm so been, psyched to have it here.
1: A day hasn't gone by where you haven't talked about how much you want to see it already.
0: <laughs> I know. I've, I feel like I found some way to frame a reference to it. You wouldn't think that I'd have this much room for Groundhog Day in my life, but turns out I have infinite room.
1: Yes, just like Groundhog Day. Yeah. So, so here's, I, here's your platform. You go ahead and talk about how much you loved it now. I'm ready
0: original Happy Death Day is basically just Scream and Groundhog Day mashed into one, and so it's a fun slasher thriller, but this kind of goes into more of the college setting and explores Tree's relationships uh, with the characters around her, so it's more of a melodramatic character drama, which kind of caught me off guard because I was still expecting the slasher. There's some real scary stuff up front, but after about 30 minutes, it's just Back to the Future too, and I was in for the ride on that. Um, I had a lot of fun and... Uh, I don't know. Uh, not everyone else in the audience looked as pleased as I was, but uh, I think this is probably my favorite of the modern horror franchises. Um, I feel like it has infinite room for expansion, and there's a post-credit sequence that not everyone responds favorably to, but I think it uh, has a lot of potential for a new film.
1: Yeah, I think it sounds like it's, a, it's based on everything you've said, it sounds like a very interesting uh, series setup. I don't know if they're going to go past a trilogy. But, you know, it'll be interesting to see where they go, certainly. And I like the the fun that they're having with it. I like the fun that you're having with it.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, even after going and seeing it, I went and watched all the Back to the Future. And uh, I feel like seeing Groundhog Day, uh, Russian Doll, Back to the Future, and Happy Death Day to you, I feel like I've done due research at this point.
1: Yeah, and I think that your piece that's uh, out now as well really reflects all the research you did. It was very, you know, you know, very informed as to all the kind of sources of inspiration for the film there and all that watching you did. So I was
0: super, I was super worried at the start of the film because it's following, um, Carter is the main, is kind of another main character. It's her love interest. And then his roommate, who's just like an Asian science geek, um, it feels like it's going to be following him and he didn't have any real character in the first film. He kind of walked in and, you know, he's like joking around, oh, did you get laid last night? But um I feel like it does a lot more with Carter that's fun. We get another moment where um Carter's like this is just like back to the future too. Tree, have you seen that? She's like sorry, you know. <laughs> she's just like this <laughs> she's just like this girl who's um a typical college girl. She's kind of indifferent to culture or the things that we would be into, but Carter's obviously a science fiction geek. There's even a moment where she's laying on the bed with her mom who's alive again, spoilers. Um and Uh, She's just sitting there, she keeps pausing the Creature of the Black Lagoon, and it's totally obvious she's getting nothing out of it. I I like that so much about her character.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, I'm going to cut you off for the film this week, Calvin, because it's going to be here, I predict, for at least another couple weeks, so you can talk about it even more then.
0: I hope so. I do feel disappointed it only launched in fifth place right now. I feel like that's a little bit low, and uh, a little bit disappointing, because... Last year's February box office, you know, we had Black Panther with two hundred million, and when you have a film like that, it kind of raises all the boats,
1: yeah, well, that one's also kind of an anomaly there, but you know yeah. i I see why Happy Death The didn't impress them as as much as some of these others here, which just seem to have mm-hmm. more draw, like number four here uh oh <laughs> Terry, what men want, obviously, it's the big box office appeal of this this uh, week here, Are you gonna go see this, Calvin? No, what I know men you. Want... I know... You should go see this because I know how much you love rom coms, right?
0: Um, maybe the next one on our list,
1: <laughs> and and that one here is a, uh, isn't it romantic number three? So I don't... Th- what this is this one about? A,
0: this is about a larger woman. She she wakes up and realizes that she's living inside a rom com. So <laughs> this is like a perfect setup for me to go to a film, right? Oh yeah. Um, so
1: it's it's like a very meta thing.
0: Yeah, she wakes up every day and it and she's saying she's vocalizing it. Oh, today I'm living out a rom com fantasy. Like all these uh, very attractive guys, she might not have had a chance with, are very interested in her, and uh, it seems like a fun spoof on rom coms. Uh, I only just watched the trailer this morning. I know nothing else about it, but I'm kind of in. If I can make it a date night, then uh, I'll probably do that. That
1: sounds interesting. It doesn't look like the kind of comedy that I I would be into based on what's here. I'm not I'm not a huge Rebel Wilson fan. But, yeah. yeah. I mean
0: you know yeah. how I am with rom-coms though.
1: Yeah, no, you'll go see just about any except apparently what men want. <laughs> right, <yeah.
0: laughs> except a remake of a comedy. I'm I'm very unlikely to go watch comedy remakes because I feel like you told the joke once. I don't need to see you remaking it.
1: Right, right. Well, hopefully if you do go see this one you'll have something more to say about it like next yeah,
0: week. Who am I kidding? I probably won't even go on a date. I'll probably just go alone yeah. sometime this week. You do that a lot, so don't could, you? <laughs> so I could cry into my popcorn.
1: <laughs> the, it'll make it too salty, though.
0: Yeah. Anyway. It's already salty enough this time of year.
1: Yeah. Don't eat the popcorn. It's really bad for you guys. But yeah. also eat the popcorn because the theater needs the support. It's a, it's a catch-22. <laughs> anyway, so number two here, though, we have uh, Lego Movie, which so you... So do you
0: have any plans to go see this?
1: Not really. You know, I, I read your review, and it was like... Uh, It sounds okay. You know, it sounds like what I expected out of the sequel. So I feel like I've already seen it. And I I don't, I didn't feel like I needed to see more of the Lego movie anyway. It's pretty self-contained and perfect as is. Uh,
0: I feel like you might like some of it. I feel like uh, Bruce Willis shows up uh, often. Um, There's even a scene where the gal, I always forget her name, runs into him in the ventilation ducts. You know, an old diehard thing. Like a diehard joke. Is he actually yeah.
1: acting, or is he just doing <laughs> Bruce Willis again?
0: Eh, it's just Bruce Willis again, and I thought it was funny enough that uh, I think you might get something out of those throwbacks. Um, it it is uh, it goes a little bit better than I thought it would. Uh, I was very worried about the movie, even while watching it, which is always a cautious thing. You never know if you want to be that worried about a movie in the middle of it.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I, I wasn't sure about going to see it before, but... Your description of this single Bruce Willis cameo has convinced me that it's worth my money just for that five seconds.
0: At least I think you'll want to watch it on demand. And um, if you you say you like the original Lego, and I think this has that same spirit to it, so
1: that's good.
0: It doesn't have the kind of diminishing returns you think it has. I mean, it has a little bit of trouble lifting off, but once it's up in the air, you could kind of enjoy the ride.
1: Mhm. Well, that's good to hear. I don't want it to fail. And it's not gonna no, because how much money okay. it's making, yeah. But I guess uh, the other question is about uh, financially here. Our number one kind of is the question here is how do we define how successful it is with a uh, Alita: Battle Angel at number one here.
0: I'd say critically successful, but it is a weird thing where you get into first place and people are wondering if you were a success, right? Right. <laughs> like, I
1: mean, like it's number one at the box office, and that's it's not like a small number necessarily, but it, it is kind no. of small considering what the budget is and what the film is supposed to be like it made 28 million here on its opening weekend and that's not like terribly great like i remember reading something i said that this is the the worst in like 15 years for this week
0: yeah it seems to be an all-time low for a a large variety of reasons i think Uh, i think the stuff coming out the last couple months has been a little bit weird there wasn't a lot of holdover from last month where we'd have a other than Glass, there's nothing that really held over us. So. There was no
1: big like blockbuster in the previous, like Glass no. was the biggest thing. And so so Alita
0: is really our first semi-blockbuster, but it has to make about $200 million. so you have to wonder when films get that big to be that, you know, financially risky, whether or not we'll ever get sequels to them, so uh, I like Alita, my review's on the side of that as well.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, that's the thing that I I think is kind of worrisome, is that James Cameron has sunk so much money into producing this film, as well as a bajillion other Avatar sequels, and God knows that there's no interest in those kind of drumming up right now. (laughs) I know. The marketing for Alita was aggressive. I've been seeing it for what feels like years now, disgust.
0: Well, Cameron's been writing this story for over 20 years, so this is a long, gestating project, and it feels like it it feels like it's been in development hell watching it because uh, I don't know even like the main actors look a little bored and tired um I thought that the the guy who plays uh, Alita is very good and um it seems like Christoph Waltz is a little bit bored as her dad uh, that kind of surprised me
1: that's that's a shame because Christoph Waltz is such a capable and astounding actor like I remember when like first seeing that he was going to be part of the film I'm like ah there's some credibility here
0: and everyone talks about how he is in the Tim Burton movie, The Big Eyes, and uh, how this is kind of known for the eyes of uh, Rosa Salazar, who already has big eyes, but they've been very emphasized in the style.
1: they they got to be all Animu-style.
0: Right. Um, I haven't seen the Animu, as you say, or the manga, <laughs> so I don't know much about Alita, except that on the film's own merits, I had a really great time.
1: Oscar, oh, you had a great time. I heard like the action sequences are really great, and you said this was like the first... Uh, you know, like, deserving film of 3D since, like, almost 10 years now, right? Since
0: Hugo, which was, what, like, 2011-ish? So yeah, 2011. Yeah, about eight years. Uh, and it it really did something for me. There are some very kinetic action sequences where it feels like it plays into the 3D. I wouldn't want to see it without it, so uh, I'd probably encourage everyone to go see it while in theater, because uh, I wouldn't want to watch this at home.
1: Yeah, I mean, of everything else here, this one seems... Along with like a happy death day here, based on your praise, yeah. deserving of you know your, your box office money this time, uh, especially considering the kind of the talent behind here. I think both Robert Rodriguez and James Cameron are very um, important artists, you know, and they have been for some time, though they have lost a bit of their edge due to you know commercial you know pandering, but a still, little bit, yeah, only, only a um, little bit, like not enough to say, like uh, I say stuff like. You know, Sin City comes across a little commercially, but it's still very stylistic and artistically inspired. The sequel, not as much.
0: Rodriguez is interesting, the way he works with dimensions, because Sin City is so cut down to the 2D dimension. And that he's able, with like Spy Kids and what came afterward, to kind of expand. He uh, used some of the same technology that James Cameron originally did. So uh they're kind of both working off the same format and I see why they'd want to work together.
1: Yeah, it's a very interesting team up and I think that's what one, one of the main appeals at least I thought to Alita was, but as it kind of, you know, stirred in development for longer and longer, my interest waned more and more.
0: Yeah, I feel like it had too long of a tail now, like we've been talking about it too long and in, in like these Oscars, too many things have been changed based on feedback. Yeah. So I feel like I feel like maybe a more uh, linear process. Mm-hmm would have helped this kind of linear action movie through.
1: Mm-hmm. Do you think you'd go see a sequel if they end up doing oh, that? Oh, yeah.
0: Right. I'll, I'll, go, I'll go opening week if they do a sequel. I really like Alita. I, I think it could have been great. I don't think it's quite there.
1: Ah, well, hopefully it uh, turns around and it sticks around the box office for a while. I'd like to see it make its money back, but, uh, you know, I, as is... I think uh, out of, like,
0: all the fake sports and sci-fi movies, I really like their version of Roller Derby. It It's really fun.
1: Yeah. Well, uh, I think now is probably a good time then to move on to our featured film, which is very different from Alita, wouldn't you say? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> there, There's no roller skate derby things in this movie.
0: Good transition, but we'll get with it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so uh, this week we're talking about a classic. I wanted to kind of bring up a, a film classic, which we haven't discussed in, in some time now. We did a lot more contemporary stuff as of late. So uh, 12 Angry Men just seemed like the perfect point to go to. Like when I think of a classic film, that's like almost where my mind shoots to immediately. The boy stayed home, had another fight with his father, stabbed him to death, and left the house at 10 minutes
0: after 12. He even remembered to wipe the knife clean of fingerprints. Now, are you trying to tell me that this knife really fell through a hole in the boy's pocket, someone picked it up off the street,
1: went to the boy's house, and stabbed his father with it just to test its sharpness? No, I'm just saying it's possible the boy lost his knife and that somebody else stabbed his father with a similar knife. It's just possible. Take a look at this knife.
0: It's a very unusual knife. I've never seen one like it. Neither had the storekeeper who sold it to the boy. Aren't you asking us to accept a pretty incredible coincidence?
1: I'm just saying a coincidence is
0: possible. And I say it's not possible.
1: Where did that come from? It's the same
0: knife. you, And we need to make up for all the times that we uh, mispronunciated it. Lumet's name.
1: Yeah so that was a a big contention as we kind of tried to fix in the editing of our network uh podcast is that we kept uh mispronouncing Sidney Lumet's name and luckily our friend Jesse there helped us out a little bit and hopefully he'll chime in here a couple times to just to remind us to make sure we don't get off track again. Um,
0: I think 12A Grimett is interesting because it kind of started as a tv movie and then it's obvious that it didn't have the original scope of being theatrical. Like, uh, you only get the singular room, and Lumet was a TV director working with TV actors. So it's kind of like a, a Henry Fonda production, and he got all the big TV actors of that time period. So, not the most notable names, but you'll recognize people.
1: Yeah, that was something I point out, uh, was pointing out to you, and this is that there's a lot of you know kind of semi regular big characters kind of pop up here and there and you can recognize, but I didn't actually realize this was a television production first. Is that something you found out in research?
0: Yeah, um, apparently it was, uh Lumet didn't really know what he was going into transferring it to movies. Uh, it faced mm-hmm. some challenges, but I think that gives it an interesting scope that we weren't really getting. Uh, you could look at, like, Hitchcock's Rope or something as, like, an early format of how this could work.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I think what's interesting as well is that I remember reading a while back that another inspiration for uh, Lumet doing 12 Angry Men was another Henry Fonda film from 1942 uh, called The Oxbow Incident. Have you seen that one, Calvin? I haven't. It's a Western, so you should totally check it out. And it's, uh, you know, Henry Fonda stars in it, and it's basically about him and his group of town people, like, gathering around these uh, three men which they locate who they are, assume are these uh, cattle wranglers who they're accused of murdering the guy whose cattle they now have. And so there's this kind of. Uh, you know, hanging trial just put out in the open and they have to fight for their lives here and Henry Fonda is trying to convince, you know, the the angry mob as well. It's very kind of harrowing, you know, story watching it happen.
0: Yeah, that sounds good. I have to look into that one.
1: Yeah, so it's like a, you know, courtroom drama western kind of thing and it's this really cool mixture and I, I dig it a lot. It's one of my favorite, uh, you know, higher up westerns. I know I put it in like the recommendations part of my western list when I wrote that.
0: Oh, yeah. I, I think that is like the interesting thing is that this is like a chord of people that you don't know if you should really trust at all um, in 12 Angry Men. Um, right.
1: Well, and it's going back again. It's like, you know, the characters that are very fleshed out here. And uh, I guess, as you mentioned, you know, that there are some familiar faces in the crowd here that you may not recognize by name. But, you know, they are familiar other than, of course, Henry Fonda, who is this kind of beacon of hope and righteousness in every film he's in, except for one very particular one.
0: <laughs> um, and you can see that they're uh, dealing with the case of a kid who may have um, stabbed his father. So they're going to uh, kind of go around the table and figure out where everyone's at on it. But before they do that, they have a they have a really prolonged entry scene, which is very rare for uh, films.
1: Yeah, it takes uh, probably about like 10 minutes before you kind of get into the dialogue and actually into the discussion of the film. There's the whole lead up with everyone kind of coming to the courthouse and the explanation of the duties to the jury members and then them all shuffling into the room which you cited as like your favorite scene of the room for the film.
0: yeah, the early scene where you get to see how people are standoffish and what their association will be with the room is really interesting. Uh, someone goes and tries to flick on the fan of course it's not working. It's a little bit too hot in the room everyone's perspiring and that that builds and builds throughout the uh, film in a really nice way.
1: It's a really good indication of uh, characterization. That's a, a very great example of it, and you see throughout the film is that the physical performances and the mannerisms of the actors all convey their specific characters, and we learn about them through their actions and their behaviors. And you know, just another important setup is the foundation of the room. You know, that opening shot does a really great job as well of setting up the. Uh, the environment and where all the you know places are and everything and where everyone (laughs) is positioned it
0: is great because you start you start up above the fan and then as the film goes you lower and lower until your eye level and you're getting like close-ups of the people and then by the end it has made like a 180 rotation to the back of the room and you Mm -hmm. see how it's changed people just being in that room for a couple hours
1: It's just very well conceived, like they very obviously thought out ahead of time how they wanted to film this whole thing. Like they considered the material and how best to convey that through the camera. And so like you said, it does. The film starts by filming everything from very up high and slowly over the course of the film it drops further and further closer to eye level.
0: And then you get you get more uncomfortable too because you're closing in and the room's getting hotter and the guys are getting more claustrophobic. The one guy just wants to get to his damn baseball game. And, mm-hmm. and as the film goes, he's pressured into a little box and they're all boxed in until you get to see a little bit of groupthink happening and then the after effects of whether or not they should have really trusted each other in the first place.
1: Yeah. Uh, I think it's another important element we mentioned as well as the the heat There's a very uh, effective tool that they use in the film to dial up the tension even further is that they establish that this is all happening on a very hot day and there's no air conditioning in the room, you know, with the fan not working and the sweat just starts to pile up more and more on these people as, like, the situation just gets more heated.
0: It's great because they bring it up in conversation, too, and they reflect on... uh, It's basically like they're entering into a pressure cooker and... The entire time it's boiling and boiling over until it, you know, there's so much condensation in the room it starts pouring outside to reflect it.
1: Right. Well, especially when you consider, like, I mean, have you ever been in a small, stuffy room with 12 people? It's, you know, it heats up fast. Yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's a good question to bring up. Have you ever been on a jury?
0: Um. Yeah, I've done the jury duty, but for nothing significant. <laughs> you know, right. It, of course, like this. Uh, I, think I feel like it. anytime you're called and it's like someone defaulting on a parking ticket <laughs> it's not like a boy murdering his father
1: right i i don't think i've had any personal uh, no what do i mean i think of course i haven't been i'd know if i went to the damn courthouse oh, i've were... been i've been on a jury before ever so i guess it's interesting to know the perspective and how different it is because obviously it's very dramatized in the film
0: yeah i think it's fun to go and kind of get a feel of the system it is a duty in a sense uh it is an honor to be able to go, I guess. But uh, not all of these guys feel like it's treated, as essentially. Like the sports guy, I think, is both of our favorite characters as far as the outsider.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh He's definitely an interesting character in the, you know how he kind of changes and feels throughout the film. I think that's probably the most uh, important facet of the film, is that the cast is so very well balanced and characterized. Each one has a distinct personality, and you understand them, and they're representation on the film is balanced throughout, so you get equal exposure to all of them and get a feel. You know, so they all have their different positions and, you know, reasons for their feelings and everything, and you get very, you know, easy, quick feel for that throughout, and each of their characterizations just continues to reinforce that. Um he's definitely one of the more fun characters. I know you also mentioned that you like Jur number two a lot. Yeah, he's, he's funny,
0: he's squeaky and uh and uh has a high pitch voice. But he always uh he always morally gets to the center of the
1: facts. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, th- th- there's something else I just wanted to point out as well is that how, uh, when everyone's sitting down in the beginning, we point out that they they vocalize that everyone sits down in the order of their juror numbers because nobody in the film has names, so you have to identify them each by their numbers, and so that's how you kind of remember like the squeaky guy, he sits next to the main one there, so he's jury number two. The you know the very angry guy who takes you know very long time to come around, he's number three, and so on and so on. Henry Fonda's number eight and all that. But I I did want to point out as well, before we get too far off, of how, like I said earlier, that there are a lot of recognizable faces here that you Mm -hmm. may not recognize, and some even recognizable voices. Like, um, I don't know if you were called Calvin, if you noticed, but the head of the juror here, who kind of takes control of everything, juror number one, is Martin Balsam. And you may more, you know, and everyone else may more easily recognize him as the detective in Psycho, the guy who gets killed by Norman on the staircase.
0: Yeah, you'll know him from all the presidents, Men, Psycho. He's he's a great actor, and he does a good job here of kind of holding court. But uh, also, he's a he's a frustrating character too.
1: Yeah, somewhat. But um, I also want to point out because when you talked about liking Juror Number no. Two so much, I bet you didn't realize that. Uh, I don't know John... if
0: I I don't know if I love Juror Number no. Two. <laughs> he's a I thought he was a little bit uh high pitched and squeaky.
1: Well, that's because you'll probably more recognize his voice, he does the voice of Piglet
0: oh does he <laughs> yeah
1: that's piglet like, like think about okay. it back and you can hear his voice and you're like yeah that's totally piglet that's it <laughs> which is funny yeah and then you got like juror number three he's lee J. Cobb. he's the detective in the exorcist that's kind of his other big claim to fame there as well as being in uh on the waterfront
0: yeah um i think it is important to look at like all these guys are very new yorky guys uh, whether or not they came from there they were all uh basically in the New York theater and television scene at this point in their lives. And that's kind of what Lumet originally cast from. Like, he's very familiar with, uh, from being on the East Coast, he was a TV guy and he knows that circle.
1: Yeah, and of course why he made such a perfect fit for Network as well, like we previously talked about. But New York uh, has always been a big part of Lumet's films, you know, even kind of coming back to with uh, Dog Day Afternoon and Surfer as well.
0: Yeah, Serpica is a great one if you want to... And, and Dog Day, they have a perfect feeling for New York.
1: Mm-hmm, absolutely. This you one know, does again,
0: too, without even going outside, really. I, I no, feel like you feel the New they, York in that stuffy room.
1: Right, they don't even explicitly say it's New York or anywhere in that point. I think that's part of the power of the film as well, is that they... Intentionally go other way think, not uh, to make key identifiers of anything.
0: I think the only way you know is the guys go into the Yankees game. That's the only way you have like a real context. Like, okay, this is New York. He's he's right next to the stadium somewhere.
1: Yeah, so. mm-hmm. but like in another facet like that, they make sure to explicitly not allude to the exact race of the kid that's on trial here. Mm. But they do make it clear that he is of some descent. They, you know, he's possibly a black or Latino kid of some kind. Probably, based on the descriptions of the areas he comes from, so when the prejudice and comes out a, against him
0: was that this is an all white male crew too, so right they have as, that influence. As,
1: as it would be in the time, I think that was an interesting thing to note that that was a weird thing is that there's a women's bathroom in the room for some reason, even though that there were women serving on juries at the time
0: and what did you think it was about like a, what did why was it framed so often in the movie?
1: I don't know. I don't know if it was always intentionally framed. Um, Maybe it was a way of pointing out, you know, and like acknowledging the audience that there should be some kind of representation there. Maybe it was just accidental. (laughs) I I don't think
0: it was. (laughs) It would be odd to me because
1: of how important the structure of the room is to the whole piece that it it would just be bizarre to accidentally put it there. Like, there has to be a reason.
0: And, I mean, I feel like there's There's a sense that okay, it has men in the title, right? And it you have twelve angry men, and there isn't the presence of women. So what do men do without the presence of women? They kind of do this. They kind of argue, and they kind of uh, posture, and try Mm -hmm. to get uh, without emotion. They try to find resolutions.
1: There's certainly a, a lot of posturing in the film, you know, especially within the characters. I think one of my you know one of the other aspects I really noticed about the film is how often you know the hypocrisy of some of the characters is called out and, you know, increasingly satisfying ways, especially concerning Lee J.com, you know, Drew number three's character. How he keeps um making these like wide accusations that, you know, and, and things like dismissals that end up getting thrown back in his face like just a scene or two later.
0: I feel like there is the there is a the point where the men go in their washroom too and uh some of the tension kinda of falls away. They're able to wash it off and sort of relate as humans to each other, so maybe there's something to it. I'm sure it's not accidental.
1: Right. There's there's certainly an important aspect to the bathrooms there. I think, you know, something interesting to kind of explore that I can't obviously quite uh, put into words right now, but how it is kind of a, a cleansing space where the guys kind of go away and are able to calm down somewhat and come back and try and address things from another perspective.
0: Yeah. Um, I feel like there's... There's a lot of different uh, tones in the table too that uh, each character does have their own personalities you say and they have their own approach to uh, the series of facts and they re- they reach their conclusion differently at different times which which is really satisfying to me that they don't like a, have like a round appeal where everyone comes along with whatever the fact is at the time it only takes one guy breaking off at a time to work.
1: Right. Well, I think that's the the kind of excellent testament to the pacing of the film is that it's so uh, well conceived in that regard and how like slowly the bits start falling away because it's set up excellently of just entirely like a hopeless situation that everyone is convinced that this guy is guilty. And it's only Henry Fonda who thinks that, you know, he's innocent. And it's just like slowly kind of peeling back at the layers and kind of poking more and more holes into the prosecutor's, um, you know, testimony there to... Uh, reveal that there is in fact some doubt.
0: Yeah, i <laughs> uh, i think uh, I think uh, Henry Fonda is good, and um, as far as Lumet pictures go, I think this is a really good one. It's a little bit early for his cinematic work, but you start to see how he's going to have the uh, angry, yelly, <laughs> ranting stuff that comes through a Network later.
1: Right. Well, not only that, and like we mentioned, Dog Day and Serpico as well. That's like Al Pacino's whole mo. Mm-hmm. It's just yelling
0: loudly. um, I was saying that uh, Lumet is an actor's director, that he gets the best performances out of his people, and that they seem to respect him. He's able to stage actors very well, which uh, I think is the most evident thing about this work.
1: Staging is such a critical aspect of 12 Angry Men here. They really uh, utilize all the room. Like, you'd be. Uh, forgiven if you thought that this was a play first because blocking is such a critical aspect of everything going on here. It does feel like a play sometimes in, in its organization, but you know, amazingly enough, it's written for the screen. It's something so simplistic.
0: I mean, it is it is such an excellent example of blocking and finding the right shot for the right moment. The camera's never in the wrong place. Um, everything's intentionally done. There's not a moment of the script that's really wasted.
1: Right? It's, it's very, like, in my mind, if I try and picture what a, what a perfect film is, or at least flawless, like, 12 Angry Men is, is very much one of those contenders there. It, you know, it's just so well constructed and conceived and executed in every way. You know, the cinematography, like I mentioned earlier, how it's, it's a very active and intentional, uh, you know, movement throughout the film... As well as just kind of cutting in at the right times. Those are the really, really great close ups, like powerful close ups that kind of close in on the performances and accentuate the uh the tension and the raw emotion of each, you know, scene. And I I always
0: thought that it worked perfectly in black and white because you get that rigid uh coloring of their of their faces or the shading that um, I think it brings out a lot more of the tension in the room.
1: Well, yeah, and I think black and white also just accentuates performances even more. I don't know if you know this. I'm going to jump back into my favorite thing here. Uh, Orson Welles always advocated for black and white cinematography. He called it the, the actor's friend. Yeah. He said, you know, how it, he, he claimed at one point, kind of, you know, exaggeratedly that there has never been a great performance in color.
0: It's interesting because <laughs> I feel like that's, Okay, but um, I feel like there's certain roles like this that you shouldn't really shoot in color because it would drain the uh, the tension and the the rigidness out of the performance. I disagree with some things. I feel right. Like well, the... obviously, it's a, it's
1: an exaggerated statement, and he made that some time ago. That was that was Orson's personality, right. but but the, the the idea there is still there is that black and white accentuates performances above everything and allows the actor to come out more. Uh, one of the easiest examples, to think of that as well. One of my favorite films, you know, *Raging Bull* would be an entirely different film in color.
0: Yeah, it wouldn't quite work. Um, uh, yeah, that, that's another one where it owes its successes to the uh, black and white. And I mean, more recently, like *Roma* looks really good.
1: Right, and again, because it it uh, forces you to focus on the characters and the dialogue and expressions. Like you're not distracted by all the different colors and everything. It's it centers your focus more so on what's going on with the actors and that's why it's so powerful that's why it's not a dead form of art yet
0: i think the simplicity of it too lends well to the canvas of a boxing ring literally or or just this uh large uh table in this room
1: yeah uh, again the uh, kind of the more simple and stripped down your film becomes black and white becomes even more of a useful tool i think so, again, you know, a testament to it. And there's also really great, you know, it's hard to notice, I think, sometimes, but in the lighting of certain aspects. When, like I mentioned back in those close-ups again, I think the lighting of some characters in the close-ups is very well done. You know, it really puts more focus on the eyes. They do this kind of Dracula-ish effect where, like, you know, it's much darker, shadowy around their face, but their eyes are accentuated with a, with a light. And so it brings out that performance even more.
0: There are like at least two moments where the flickering, once the rain begins pouring real heavy and the guys are reflected back and you see the, you kind of see the rain reflected back on them. I love the lighting there and the ending scene where everyone's faced away and um, that's a really impactful scene if we want to talk about that.
1: Yeah, that's a great one to talk about. So, you know, we can talk about, what's it, it's, uh, Juror number 10 there. He's the obviously most blatantly racist character in the whole film, specifically prejudiced against these people as they call them and at one point he goes on to a huge racist you know uh <clears throat> monologue there going on and people just start ignoring him i think it's a very powerful moment it's this big wide shot where you see the whole table one by one everyone starts peeling off and facing off in different corners of the room just completely ignoring him until he's entirely isolated
0: it does go back to wide angle, and it does feel like it pulls away. Like you say, people are peeling away, literally, like one guy at a time. Just as he lost their votes, they're also removing from the conversation. They've uh, mm-hmm. more or less made up their mind about what the uh, outcome of this is going to be, and he's even the only the people, one in the way.
1: Even the people who agree with him are yep. peeling away from it, and like no longer giving him this platform to to speak his racist rhetoric which I think, again, is a testament to how you deal with these uh, kind of people, these ignorant people who, you know, just want to be hateful and spiteful, is that instead of, you can't argue with them. In the end, he just, he gives up, and he doesn't, you know, he, he says not guilty, but only because he has no other option, you know. He's, because he's been ignored, he's, you know, been left behind, and more than anything, these kind of people can't handle being ignored. That's what they want, they're attention seekers,
0: I think that a racist just really wants an argument, anyway.
1: Yeah, they just want to to spout their their bullshit over and over, and you know they want to feel that power essentially of trying to defeat someone, and that's how they do it is just by continually forcing their their hate speech down the throat of someone until they give up, until they can't handle it, and they they'll consider that a victory. Yeah. You know, um, instead of just flat out ignoring them, which is how that really should be handled.
0: Yeah, I thought that I thought that was a good way for it to go out too, because it, it, the camera races again. You go high angle lens again, and you get to see um, a reversal of the opening shots. You get to see the men uh, kind of dispersing the way that they came in. The way they came in, they were uh, such uh, cold shoulders to each other, right? And you get to see them d- repeating that action just toward this one guy.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's also a very important moment for when the film came out as well. This film, Twelve Angry Man came out in. And- 1957 so this was a huge you know kind of uh moment for something for a film this long before the the kind of civil rights movement you know discussion of race was still very much a kind of segregation kind of discussion here this was not out of the normal for a viewpoint for people to have
0: it a good thing about a film that's classic like this is it never gets old i i don't think there's any part of this that looks dated or unnecessary
1: yeah, absolutely, and again, some of those sentiments still ring very true today, which is unfortunate. Though I don't know if there'll ever be a time where that sentiment is entirely erased. Though I think what's also kind of interesting is that it also reinforces the lack of competence on the defense team's side. Right. <laughs> I kind of pointed this out when we were watching the film, because they go through that throughout the whole film. Is that basically it's that the you know the reason why everyone's so convinced that this kid is guilty is because. The defense team did such a poor job of pointing out obvious holes in the prosecution's defense. And I think, that, you know, just that this guy is a member of the jury is another example of that, because he really should have been vetted. That's what the whole vetting process of jurors is. Someone so blatantly racist and openly, you know, prejudiced against this, um, you know, minority kid. Yeah, you know, you'd get that guy out of there right away.
0: It, it, is, it is clearly all the warmth and personality has to go from the people, because there are so few props, really, we get... We have a fan. We have a table. We have a couple knives stuck in the middle of the table, and an ashtray.
1: Yeah, uh, and then there's also, I guess, there's the um, the floor model that they bring out at one point. But really, that's it as far as uh, props go. It's again very minimal film. It's all kind of in the the dialogue and the character interaction there. But it's so brilliantly done. And uh, never for a moment is it not filled with tension and you know intrigue. Like I, I you'd be hard pressed to lose interest watching the film.
0: I'd agree, yeah. Uh, I've seen it countless times now, and I was saying the last time I saw it, it was with a historian in it who gave, a, who lent a little bit more context into how court was at the time, and that was interesting. Um, if you have the DVD, uh, that's a worthwhile, but kind of dry watch.
1: Mm-hmm. I think it's, uh you know, nothing beats just watching the film itself, and I know this was one of those classic films I discovered at a younger age that I feel a lot of people do. It's an extremely accessible film. You know, like this is the kind of film they show you in high school almost.
0: Yeah, I, I agree. Uh, I'm pretty sure I watched this in some kind of high school film class.
1: Yeah, and so it's, it's one I would definitely recommend. Again, when people ask me, when I think of a classic film, I think of stuff like, you know, 12 Angry Men. I think of like uh, Casablanca as well or Citizen Kane, obviously. You know, the big ones. But 12 Angry Men is usually the most immediately accessible one. Like, I feel you could show this one of any age, and they would be enthralled by it.
0: I'd agree, yeah, I think it has a universality, too, that, uh, I think it works, uh, despite being fixated on New York, Lumet is always sure to make his message universal.
1: Yeah, it's entirely universal, and it reaches, you know, audiences of any kind. You know, again, I think this film even applies, you know, across the ocean, essentially. You know, you could show this to, to a foreigner, and the the sentiments are still there, it's all, it's Because it's a human drama. It's not just about the American legal system, though it is very much so about that as well.
0: I mean, neatly, he's able to get a guy who is like a foreigner who's immigrated to New York. So we're able to have that perspective in it too and be able to make it a little bit diverse while still just being 12 white guys in a movie.
1: Yeah, I, I guess that's the interesting aspect as well, is that the real accomplishment here is that Sidney Lumet has made a film that is so universally accessible about 12 white dudes sitting in a room arguing <laughs> for an hour and a half <laughs> right yeah and,
0: and I think that the argument being the interesting thing and that it's able to pace it out in a way that complements a jury process makes makes it a especially worthwhile for me
1: well I think as well what the, the strength of it is that it puts the audience in the same perspective as the majority of the uh, jurors there who are all against the kid is that the evidence when it's first presented, kind of, again, brought up by everyone else into Henry Fonda's character, who's just uncertain as he immediately presents his thoughts. You know, it seems very solid, like a solid case. This kid killed his father, for sure, no way around it. But, you know, kind of, again, as it more goes on, you you peel back the layers more and see where there is some doubt. And that's, I think, what the kind of the beauty of it is, is, that they're not having to create some proof. They don't have to say that this definitely did not happen, you know, for these reasons, they just have to say that it could have not. The, the, the evidence against him is not strong enough to say that he for certain did this. I think the
0: way that they present the evidence is really smart, too, because it gives you enough reasonable doubt to keep watching it, because if it were entirely obvious, you would turn it off ten minutes in, right?
1: Right, and and there's always it's a reveal of new information, and it's again, it's very methodical how they go about it. They set up, like, three distinct um, pieces of evidence that, you know, and they slowly, by one by one kind of disprove each of them there's you know there's the bit with the knife and the guy underneath the stairs you know the 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 manager of the hotel or whatever he is or is it a apartment complex and then there's the um the lady across the street which i think is the the most compelling one to me i like that argument the most with the the eyeglasses bit you did especially yeah that that was my favorite of those three i think i mean i know it's like a, a bit of a stretch to kind of to get there but like the this kind of realization especially what it means to the character who is convinced by it his his relatability to the glasses thing? I like how yeah. it's this kind of this sudden realization because of this guy in the room and he does the glasses thing that people do, especially as someone who wears glasses I relate to that i haven't I haven't done that in a long time though because years ago I switched to just like full plastic frames, which I recommend to anyone because those eye things suck <laughs> i still for... got
0: I still got the glasses with the eye
1: pinchers so, yeah, uh... I hate those. No, I'm so glad these plastic frames—they're invincible, man. I, I have not broken a pair of these in years, but I, I break and those twig I, ones all the time.
0: I thought it was really funny the way that the guy presents the other switchblade too. Uh, oh, it's a—it's
1: a great moment, like this great dramatic moment where they say there's not a life like that and anywhere else in the world, and Henry Fauna <laughs> just whips out another one and stabs into the table, and everyone like backs the fuck up
0: <laughs> it's cool because they're staged in a way where they're at the center of the table but there's also some hints that the men are obsessed with death they're not very far off from the guy that would stab his father uh in the end like the guy raising the knife up over the guy he, you know you feel a tension there that oh
1: they're, they're that great moment where lee J. Cobb does that and he has the knife to try and demonstrate how it would be done and he goes to, to stamp fond his character and all the tension up until now allows you to believe as the other characters in the room do that he might very well stab him and everyone just like stands up all at once it's this very dramatic maneuver and again it's and it, very I mean, well communicated
0: yeah it is a, it has a good feeling where all the guys kind of um, they all jump out up out of their seats and they're afraid that he he legitimately
1: looks like he's going to stab the guy now I do want to I do want to acknowledge that the fact that Henry Fonda's character brings in the knife should make that a hung jury just in that principle because that is you know kind of tampering with things, and they acknowledge that in the film and that it's legal, and you know, but, but it's kind of, it's okay because it's still good dramatic writing and as long as you could buy into that then any kind of logic just kind of falls by the wayside. It's a nitpicky thing and it doesn't matter really. All right. But um, I do want to talk, I, I guess again about the, the ending, which I think is, is extremely compelling with Lee J. Comm's character. I think his is the most uh, you know, uh, heartfelt in the film, I, I guess, is a weird way to describe it, but Like, his uh, emotional conflict that they present early on with his son and then it comes up again in the ending like that is very brilliant and compelling And that, you know, the speech he gives there at the end where he just goes in this huge tirade about it. Super compelling, and it breaks my heart watching it.
0: I think Cobb has the best transformation throughout the film. I think everyone else is a little bit laid back. I mean, even Fonda's not given a full performance. He has to kind of allow space for these 11 other guys so I think that Cobb goes all the way in.
1: Right, it's really not Fonda's film as much as you would think it is. Fonda is there to basically do what he does best, which is embody all of the goodness in the world. He does perfectly. He's yeah. great at that. But he's not given a chance to give a like a full-blown performance like Cobb is here. You know. I, I mean, think Cobb is the real acting star of the film. Fonda's the producer
0: it. on it, so he's just collected all his TV friends and allows them the space to kind of make grand performances. A lot of them... Got their start in film coming through this one. So, Lumet was always good at that, of uh, pulling from stage and TV and allowing a bigger stage.
1: Yeah, I think what happened was that Fonda saw the clear importance of this film and how great it would be to, to make it. And, you know, that's why he went ahead and produced it and got all of this together and made it happen. And I'm so very thankful that he did. You know, it's a phenomenal film. I think it's it's one of those few ones I can include you know, definitely called perfect.
0: Yeah, there aren't any any obvious flaws in it. I, I like
1: watching it more every time. And yeah, the other thing is it's immensely rewatchable. It's always full of attention no matter how many times I've seen it, it's you know, and I've been watching it for years and years and years now. And it just felt appropriate to talk about it here again, you know. Absolutely. Yeah, well, do you have any other uh final thoughts I think on the film, Calvin? I think no. it's you know, Again, like we said, it's it's a perfect film. I think most everyone's probably seen it by now, but for those you know who may be listening who haven't, it's it's kind of the perfect uh, transition into those kind of classic cinema films, and it's you know just really great evidence of writing, you know, and directing and camera movement, and everything in a very contained setting.
0: I'd agree. Uh, I have nothing left on that. If we want to talk about Happy Death Day too, then I'm here
1: for it. <laughs> well, like I said, we're gonna reserve that for next week because I'm just hanging around a bit, so. Those only tuning in for happy death day discussions, we'll return next week with more of
0: that. I guess I'll be here for that.